Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was John Barry and the James Bond theme. What an opening to the Strange Brew today because I've got guitarist as well as composer Ray Russell here on the Strange Brew who played those very guitar licks and he's had a remarkable career. We can only cover a tiny element of what he's done over the years. A huge welcome, Ray. Good. Good to see you. And it's just amazing to have that as one of the first things that you did from a professional perspective from your career at a young age. You you were quite young at the time, weren't you? It's pretty young. I had this day job, which was in classical music shop. It was just getting out separate parts for orchestral scores. And as I had, you know, musical knowledge, they, they took me on. That didn't last a long time. I, I had a copy of The Melody Maker. You know, at the time, the younger folk out there, Imagine a time without mobile phones and even answer phones where people would just pick it up when it rang because it did, you know. And I saw that, there were, that uh, Vic Flick was leaving John Barry and they wanted another guitar player. There was a phone number in the article in the, in the Melody Maker and I just phoned it up and I said, well, I'll do it. And they gave me an audition. So uh, my parents, who were very good to me, I had this record player and I just they bought me um, a number of John Barry's greatest hits, which quite a lot. And I just sat down and I learned all the tunes. When I got to the audition, they put a load of music up and I couldn't read a note, but because I could see what the titles were, I just played it and bluffed my way to success and uh, went on the road the next week on a tour. <laughs> it's crazy. You don't realise how big deal it was playing that tune and playing in that band until you, until like, you know, 30 years on, you say to somebody, I remember saying to somebody else in America, and they, what have you done? And I wasn't going to say play with the John Barry 7 for any particular reason. I thought they'd be more interested in Tina Turner and, you know, and Phil Collins and things like that. So I dropped a couple of names. And then I just said, oh, and, uh, you know, I played uh, with John Barry. And it was a kind of I am not worthy moment, you know. They were, you know, it was like awe-inspiring. They thought I was some sort of god. It was like, it was so strange. And, I, and then, of course, you know, the penny dropped later that, you know, that was such a big deal then. Something that you can't just can't get that back, you know, that those kind of days. And you continued your association playing on the James Bond soundtracks for quite a while. Did eight films, yeah. And John sort of it was a bit like a franchise, uh, in a way, and and John, you know, came out to do some other things and then other people came in, you know, like then Paul McCartney and different different composers came in and use different big names to sing the theme songs, and um, they're their own special people. So after that, I didn't do it. I mean, it was just fine. At the time that was going, I was doing you know quite a lot of other things, so it was probably the height of my, my kind of session um, career, if you like. You know, there was a lot of sessions going on then, so we were always near a studio anyway. That's the theme I get speaking to many artists, particularly those that worked in session work at the time, that you were often going from studio to studio anyhow. So it was a hugely prolific period. Always, always there. There's always a session going on. I mean, and I say this without appearing big time, but but it was like there was a certain sort of, there was an A-list and a B-list, a bit like the Wrecking Crew. And, and we were kind of on the A-list because, you know, it was me, Mo Foster, Simon Phillips, uh, Mike Moran and Tony Hymas, various people that were good and, and did come up with the stuff they needed, the riffs they needed to make hits you know and i mean a song can be a hit song but you know it's everything you know it's a it's a group thing it's like a film it's a it's a group thing that makes it you know so i mean we always had probably a, you know a record or two records in the charts that we've done so you know we were just popular people are superstitious they think well if you 
they've done that, they'll probably be all right on this, you know. And in 1968, you started releasing your own material and we've got the Ray Russell Quartet and the track Footprints from your debut LP Turn Circle. As well as John Barry Seven, you've got, you were playing with Georgie Fame, Graham Bond. Oh, yeah. Those artists were a bit more jazz leaning at times. So, yeah. your own solo material, you went deeper into that jazz side. Yeah, it was, it was strange, really. I, you know, guitar crosses worlds, you know, it crosses obviously the, the rock world, but, well, you know, but then there's guitar in, in jazz, although the sound's very different. It's there. But I got, I was interested in all the jazz harmonies. You know, from Kenny Burrell, you know, um, all those guys, uh, some great players, you know, but the, it was a sound that I wasn't too keen on. Like it was a good sound, you know, but it wasn't the sound I wanted. I wanted a kind of, I sort of got the idea when, when it was a Georgie and we were playing R&B in the, in the original sense of R&B and we were touring with the Butterfield Blues Band and Paul Butterfield was a big blues player and he doesn't do his kind of, you know, big blues sound and then, well, that's that's a great sound then, of course, you know, Hendrix. And you think you, you really got to play, you've got to go forward with a really great sound. I mean, it's only really like saying the way the way Coltrane used to kind of scream on his saxophone and say, well, it's, it's that, you know, big sound that you need. Can't do that with a guitar with, mm. with round my strings, not bending notes. You can't do that. The Footprints and was on Miles Smiles, I think, originally was one of the, I suppose, lighter tunes on the album. Then the next album, Dragon Hill, I think it was Dragon Hill, had really progressed into something quite different. Thank you. 
We're next got an artist you played with him on quite a few albums actually certainly over the years and we've got bill fay and, and time of the last persecution the title track of that yeah a unique style maybe before we get into that element it's mm. worth asking about how you got involved in, in playing with bill in the first place actually it was through mike gibbs bill had got this record do with Decca and they had their studio at the time and it was the same time as Mike had a record deal with Decca his big band and we did that and then they asked him to produce Bill or play a part in Bill stuff and um he did so he asked me to do it and that's how I met Bill and then we we got on very well philosophically and um and musically although it's hard to break the two but the he was playing very fundamental stuff on the piano but very kind of meaningful and uh, we just got in and just carried on recording together with uh, a drummer called Alan Russian and a bass player called Daryl Runswick, who were part of the my quintet at the time. And it was great. <laughs> it, was, it was very different. I mean, you never knew what was going to happen. As well as the fantastic lyrics, I yeah. find listening, especially to those first few albums of Bill's, is that the songs would sometimes take a different direction that you wouldn't expect. Did Bill have a clear view in terms of how the song should take shape? Well, it's pretty easy about what we played. I mean, he'd just play us a song, and by the end of the song, you could see where it would go, and he let us, you know, mess around with how the time should be and, you know, how the phrases should be. I mean, it's it's really what it is. It's very, it was, it was very emotional, is it? Really, it's, you're making things out of the words, the emotion of the words, more than the music. It's a... He'll sing Peace Be in Your Bike and in Your Dorkies, you know, and I'll just play something that's just, you know, that's that, that reflects that in music. I mean, that's how we, we carried on, really. But we we lasted a long time. Well, we haven't stopped. It's just that COVID stopped us for two years, and I haven't really heard much from Bill. That I know his partner was ill, and um, I think he'll turn up. I think we'll probably do something else. It's just very hard for him to play live at the moment, which is a shame. I must stand by the side 
of the mountain I must be where I know I must be When you stand and face the gas masks and junctions You must know what it all really means Of the last persecution and Caesar shall be raised. He will ask for his feet to be kissed by your sister, and your children will fear at his name. So we have another solo track of yours. This time it's the clapping song from Ready or Not, DJM. Was that Elton John's label? It was Sue with that DJM's music, yeah. Right. Publisher. And also he bought all the Beatles publishing originally. But yeah, he, he set up a record label and a guy called Kaplan Kay, who was a producer on the label, decided that he'd like to make an album with us. He probably regrets it ever since. No, it was funny. It was a great, it was a great album and really good players on it. It was... It was a real high point of making an album. It's brilliant. Caleb Quayle, fantastic, amazing musician. So who were you playing with in, in that period? So I think this this was the, the late 70s. Yeah, well, Simon and I 
Simon Phillips, IMO Foster had made quite a relationship. They were also playing with Jeff Beck at the time, you know, some of that time. Uh, and, uh, you know, and Tony Hymas. Uh, but they, they're in the band on radio or not, uh, a keyboard player called Chris Parent. And we had two drummers on some, some tracks, uh, a guy called Beat Van Hook, who played with Mike and the Mechanics and those guys. He was great and very good. Uh, John Punter was the engineer and he's, it seems to have disappeared now. He was fantastic. Great engineer. And then we, you know, we did have string section and a brass section. The clapping song, a cover version, which is, and out of all your material, um, certainly digitally, it's got yeah. quite a lot of traction, hundreds of thousands of plays. Um, it seems to have taken off. Well, yeah, you know, I've got, I was discussing this actually yesterday with somebody. There's a lot of sampling going on. I mean, that was Little Eva, that song, Little Eva. I think it was just her as a solo artist. And... Um, I really, I always like that song, an old folk song, but she did really well. And I thought, well, you know, we needed a single really. So we thought it would be a good idea. So that's what we did. And there's a, there's an outtake of it too on another, I think it's on, on a, a re-release of the album, which is quite funny, which where, where everyone forgets the words. But uh, it's, it was good. Yeah. I mean, I really, uh, there's some really nice songs on that, Sweet Surrender. Yeah, so that was. I know what you're saying. A lot of people have, have picked up on that. I, I see it around in um, in like charts of there's charts of sampling and things. I see, I see it comes up. Talking of sampling, did you play much um, library music or KLM or production any? music? It's been really good for me. I started when I was about 28, 29. Somebody asked me to do uh, a library session. I just did it on acoustic. And that lasts, and then somebody else, KPM, asked me to do a kind of rocky thing, which I did. I just got asked by various people, um, and then it went on and on, and um, I started a little company called Made Up Music, and we lasted for about 10 years. We did quite a few albums. It was great, actually, some, because we got some some really good musicians on it, and it was fantastic. But in the end, I found I was not playing enough, but doing all the, doing a lot of admin, you know. But I still write for it. I still write for other people, yeah. I think of something and I do it. I just send it out to my contacts, whoever, whoever is interested in it, and, and they'll put it out. I like production music. I think, you know, it started in uh, in the cinema, you know, the look at life and things like that. During the war, and it started, they wanted something in, in the war, you know, to, and they had to have ready-made music. So, of course, then they were doing, you know, very triumphant band stuff. And then after the war, KPM... I think we were the first, started doing other stuff and releasing. I mean, then they were putting on vinyl to go and put it in um, editor's sort of shelves. So they would, if they wanted to use a bit of music, they could use it. So it carried on from there, you know, and now it's just just a file. I mean, I've got a little studio in my house uh, and I do things for documentaries and some TV stuff so, as well. Mother told me if I was good. 
We've had Mo Foster on, on The Strange Brew. You mentioned Sam Phillips, a wonderful drummer, mm. with Mo being a bassist. And that's an amazing trio that you've got there. So I assume it was a quite a natural mm. evolution to form RMS. Yeah, we've wanted to do that. We worked a lot with a uh, producer called Greg Walsh, who's fantastic. Guy. He did M17 and Tina and all these people. And we did do a couple of uh, records for some Italian singers, Lucia Battisti was the guy that he was like really big, you know, in Italy. He was like the Elvis Presley of, of Italy. We got on very well with him recording in Italy and um he came back anyway. We'd finished the tracks and there was two days spare. So it was well, why don't we do we got this idea we want we'd like to make an album, you know. And Greg said, Great, just use the time, you might as well. We did the actual album in two days. And then we had another day we overdubbed some brass. And then um, we uh, mixed it uh, back in Trident. That's where we were for uh, another few days. And yeah, we <laughs> it was really funny because at like four o'clock on a Friday evening, it was finished. And uh, we decided we'd do that. By six o'clock, we'd all gone home to most place. And we stayed up most of the night writing it or putting the bits and pieces we had together so we could appear on a Saturday 
and uh, getting in and doing and doing the thing. And then I think we finished really late Saturday night. Probably slept in the studio, and then carried on. We woke up on Sunday morning, and then um, had it all. Did a few overdubs, and went back and had a week. You know, until it was available at this other studio in in West London. I've forgotten the name of it now. Nice little studio, and, uh, and then we we went back and missed it. So that was it was great. That was a great experience. Because in the first few years of RMS, we're in the early eighties now. Mm. Just that incredible live show that you did at Montreux with uh, Gil Evans. And that's on there. Yeah, that's on. It's out. One of the highlights have clearly been Little Wing. How did the partnership between RMS and and Gil Evans come about? Malcolm Griffiths, the trombone player, called me one day and said, "Gil wants to do a tour with a you know with a British orchestra." A few people from the States, like Lou Soloff and um, his son, called Miles, a couple of other people, and do you want to do it? And I said, well, do I, you know? Yeah. And we need a bass player. Would Mo do it? Yeah. And anyway, we did this tour. I think John Marshall played drums. We did this tour, and we did two weeks at Ronnie's. When that stopped, we did a couple of gigs around in Europe, and and then suddenly it came in that we were asked to do the Montreux Jazz Festival, and they were thinking of asking Gil and I said well you know put put two and two together we, he was like the final act on I said well why don't we you know we do our first set then we can play the second set with Gil because that was Simon uh, a lesser brass section but Mark Eichen was on there which is great yeah. and uh, and so we did he did like that and it was uh, that was magic too but we I mean I got on really well with Gil we had a great time together we used to go out and talk about a lot of stuff it was he, he just knew so much, you know, about music. He's just so intuitive about how things work. People like that. It's not just about music notes and it's got nothing to do with that. It's just about their soul, you know. It's just to do with how they feel for music. When they come out with things and make it sound like that, that that comes directly out of their, their soul. Like, I think we, we were going in the same direction. And he did another a couple of other tracks on another album of mine. Why not now? I think it's called. So yeah, that was great. So we did the uh, Montreux Jazz Festival, and that was that was the last time I saw him. Yeah. yeah. Looking at back at the footage, it's fantastic. It's been captured so well. <laughs> yeah, that was Swiss TV, you know, and um, the guy there was there on the contract to film everybody. Right. They had about three or four cameras, uh, so it was quite a setup. It was quite good that they got everybody. There were sort of no gaps or no changes. And what we did was we enhanced the the idea of it, and we got I don't know how we got this half flagging it and half paying I don't know there was a lot of negotiations went on, but we got the the a mobile there as well, which drove away from the UK. Um, so with two multi track machines as mobiles have, so that if if one's going to run out, the other one goes on.
So you mentioned Greg Walsh already. So mm. referred to Tina Turner. So I assume it was through Greg and, and the Heaven Seventeen connection that led you to working with Tina. Yeah, we've been doing some work with H One Seven, and they they're great guys. They're really great guys. And as I say, they're in, into like fairlights. They're in, into a lot of where it was like you sit a, a computer would appear in the studio. What was those little Mac ones then? You know, with the little... Yeah. Greg used to keep things on there. He used to put things on there. We'd use the tape machine, but we'd sync the tape machine up to the Fairlight. So that... I think it was one of the first records that I played on where they'd actually changed things around. Like they put eight bars on one note, eight bars on another note, and play it. And then they play, you know, C for that, and the D for the riff, and see how that fitted in a different place. So it was very creative, and it was... That was that was that first of how you can use digital to be be creative with, and they, you know, I must say it was very good. You know, we did three albums. You know, I think What Men Are was my favourite. Fantastic. So Tina was making a comeback. They wanted to make a single. I mean, I got to say that just it blew me away when she said it's the beginning of that. You know, on her own. I mean. She did it in one take, but we had the other take just in case. Safety, safety take. Incredible. And they played the, I mean, I dubbed the guitar on afterwards, and what was down was the congas and a few couple of synths and the bass and um, drums, which were computer stuff. But everything else was us. You know, such a lovely, great, uh, great vocal. When you hear it, it's so raw. It kind of goes, you go, oh, you know, to what people say, oh, hairs on the back of my neck. So it does it. You just went, Oh, amazing. Yeah, well, that was a great experience. Yeah, I've had um, Glenn Gregory on, and he just said how oh, working with Tina was just such a pleasure. Yeah, well, Glenn, yeah. I mean, they, Greg, you know, and they were, they were really good together. They were really, they should have done more, you know, more productions because they were so, so together in ideas. I mean, it just, it all knitted together. 
just working as a team. And it wasn't slow. We weren't particularly hurried, but we weren't slow. It was just like, well, let's do this. And it used to, you know, ideas used to work. And Tina loved it. I know she was, she was pretty knocked out of it. It's like a lot of things when you're doing sessions, you just knew that at the end, that record was, it was going to be a hit. Which is a great feeling to have, you know, and invariably we were right about songs. Let me say the sense, baby, since we've been together, ooh, loving you forever is all I need. Let me be the one you come running to.
from one great artist to another this time we've got scott walker with <laughs> track free from climate of hunter but equally talented but different music different approach in the studio as well is, is, is that your experience yeah the time well when we were doing that it was the time that um there were a lot of power strikes and i think we were doing that at ibc which was next door to the chinese embassy so there was unfortunately in those days you still used to get a bit of Chinese embassy come through. It's quite funny. But uh, so we had to stop, you know, for a couple of hours, which, and so it took a long time. And he's a really nice guy. I didn't used to say much. Just used to listen to it or, you know, go on the tracks and then, then put his vocal on. And that was it. So, um, yeah, he was very quiet. But I listened to that album um, about a month ago now, and I thought, I thought, yeah, you know, that was a really good album. He was very ahead of his time with a lot of... Uh, a lot of the songs. And renowned in that pit for getting amazing players, including yourself. You've got Phil Palmer, Brian Gascoigne, Peter Van Hook. Um, yeah, yeah. But also, Drake of Genius, Billy Ocean was involved on background vocals. You would not believe that. Yeah, I know. I knew a guy, um, I don't know where he is now, but he was he was at uni in Madrid. He sent me an email one day. He said, listen, I'm doing Rock Family Trees. Oh, I said, okay. And he said, can, can you give me this information? And he had so much information. You know, I'd forgotten a lot of it, which is very bad. But anyway, I, I filled in the gaps and I looked at his thing. He, he sent it just, it was incredible, the information he's got. And things like that are on there, you know, and you look and you see where people are and what bands they've joined and, and how they've gone and when they like had their own own albums and things like that. But that's the thing, you, you kind of, in the journey, you know, you see lots of different people that pop up again, you know, at different times. That's why it's, people should be good to one another. Very few people were kind of big time. I mean, like Tina, like, you know, I thought, lovely, ordinary people with a great talent. Baby, baby. 
the names they keep on coming here don't they <laughs> we've got david bowie the, the opening uh, titles from uh, labyrinth hmm. i think that that wasn't necessarily the first time you'd worked with david i think you worked with him yeah. in the late 60s yeah now i'm quite happy to say that i didn't but i did in in um in trident it was an overdub and um if one of those things i don't know if it got kept or rubbed off or whatever but i remember when in there and he was there, and there was a guy writing the music out, and he said, will you play this? I just played this bit of acoustic, and I thought it was ground control from what I remembered. It's a major song, you know. And then I went out, and that was it. I'm sure it was his track. And that, and that was funny. The film was like a session, and then suddenly I was just in, you know, with an orchestra or whatever, or just, you know, with the um, with the guys, and I was booked for a session, and, and it was for him. And uh, he just, he came in. One, there's one person I'd love to work more with. He's so fantastic, Barry. Really is a big, big favourite of mine. Was he leading or giving ideas or views on the musicians and how he wanted that to sound? Well, no, I mean, I wasn't very aware of it on the film. It was, um, 
I'm sure he did, but we didn't seem to change a lot we've done. I've worked with Tony Visconti a lot, doing a lot of things, and we've always got on really well because he, his arranging would would suit would suit David anyway. But you know, I'm not too sure of the rest the rest of that film labyrinth. I've got the um, I've got the DVD somewhere. I should I should have, to have a look. I'm I'm not sure who did all the charts on it. I'm just wondering if it was Trevor Jones. Yeah, I think it might have been. Was it? Mm. Well, I, I used to work for Trevor a lot, so that was probably why. I mean, some sessions are, although the artist is there, it's not like they've already routined it, you know, and done demos of it. And the guys going on are the sort of real, the live element, if you like, replacing the just the sample element. And at that time, the samples wouldn't be very good.
So next we've got Freddie Mercury in Time, and that was from Dave Clark's Time. So how much of that material were you on? You... Everything. Wow. Everyone. Dave's a friend. I mean, I don't I don't see him. She's quite a recluse. He's one, there's another guy for different reasons. I mean, the people I've met that are big stars in their time, there's always, there's always been something about them and a reason that they've, they've made it. I've always found something that, even in the jazz way, you know, because Gil was so original, it was such a, it's such an original voice. Dave, it's not, not a great drummer, right? But he knows that, allegedly. Sorry, Dave. But, you know, the thing is that he was the first guy who actually knew, knew what personal copyright was about. And he actually was the first person to actually buy or make or to publish his own stuff. And although this is like, oh, this is not musical, he had the sense to have the rights to, he bought like the 6-5 special, oh, but, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. But the problem is that no one sees it. I said to, I said to him, you know, Dave, you, you've got to let people see it because – you know, it's the thing that people need to see is, is they're all parts of history, but he doesn't lay it out. And he's, he, you know, I've been invited around to see, see stuff, but I haven't been, I, I should go. But I, every time we speak on the phone, it's about once every two years, I think. And um, we have a chat about everything, but he doesn't really want to put it. He doesn't really want people to see it. I mean, and the reason we, we talk more now is because uh, uh, Mike Smith, the singer in the David Clark Five dies, you know, he mm. fell over a gate and hurt himself in Spain and died through uh, his lungs were in a bad state. And we were on tour with them with um, Smith and Darbo, Mike Darbo and Mike Smith. We made an album, we did some long European tour, which was, was great, you know. After that, and then, you know, Dave was also a friend of Freddie Mercury. And when we, and when we did um, Time, there's a, there was a, it wasn't on that record, but uh, Mike Moran had, had written and arranged a thing uh, with Montserrat Cabal, the uh, opera singer, and Freddie, and we did it in Spain with the band, Royal Command Performance Job, and uh, it was a, quite an amazing thing. They were good, good friends, and they had outrageous parties. I, I have to say, I didn't go to them. But anyway, uh, I went to bed. <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was that was incredible. But time, sorry to get yeah, so. Time was a, a lot of technology that was more or less would work. Sometimes it wouldn't, and that would be a bit of a pr- uh, problem. But yeah, I mean, did that all that record with all those people it was just it kind of turned up. We did it at Mike Moran's studio in um, Radlett, and yeah, the studio there. And we we would turn up. I don't know three times a week, and people were in like Julian Lennon. And I just turn up and we'd do the song. Bizarre. There you are. In the outskirts, and so I was in North London in, in Radley, and these people just walked through the door. You know, I always find that quite amazing. Really, nevertheless, it was just amazing that these people would, you know, Stevie Wonder. So that was a good show. I didn't do it for long because I'm not very good at doing shows. I get very bored, but yeah, it was great. It was a great experience doing the album. Nobody 
get to our next track we've mentioned soundtrack work and I, I know you've got a fabulous story about george harrison's guitar uh, i've got to ask you about that story i will always tell the truth about this because the thing is that the reason i say that is because people said would say to me oh you must have wondered what it was worth and you know they what the big point they miss about it is that when you're working with somebody yeah great that he gave me something and it was really nice you know, I was very, I was very honoured, but I didn't ever think really what it was worth. He gave it to me, and I mean, that's he gave that to me when we were doing a film called Water. We'd done a lot of things for handmade films, and um, and that was the connection with Ray Cooper, the percussionist. Ray, and again Mike Moran, and um, so it was you know the connection there, and uh, so did you know Life of Brian, and, you know the Time Bandits, and, and I still in contact with the Python sound again. So. They're doing this to film water. We're playing the tracks. They're probably in the sunshine, not really wanting to play too much. So we're playing a lot more tracks. Originally, he, the engineer, Richard Dodd, I showed him a three-quarter size Gretsch I had, which is probably his favorite one. And he was, George was asking if his son could have it. But 
I couldn't let him have it because I was still using it in, in the middle of a session. And I said, well, maybe maybe afterwards that would be fine. He said, well, don't worry. He said, either way, because he had bought the company, so he could have just he can just make one. <laughs> George said, well, he can have this if you like. It's hard, you know, I'd get a tune out of it, but it's 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 good. I do, but I don't play it a lot, so you have it. So I said, oh, thanks. Later on, you know, we discover there's a record in you know made in Japan of of the uh, Kenny Everett and I don't know, you know, and there's the guitar. And anyway, my friend Paul has written a superb book on on the guitar and Paul Brett. Yeah, Paul Brett. It's a superb mm. book. I mean, so anyway, 1985, he gave me the guitar. It sat in my rack. I did a few things with it. Not a lot, but a few things. Paul Brett came around because of a charity. Do He was getting pictures for charity to auction the pictures to get money. I mean, he knew everybody. He saw, he said, what is that? And I said, well, it's it's the guitar that George Harrison gave. It's George Harrison. When did he give me? He was like, suddenly I could see, <laughs> he could see something, you know, it was, oh, you know, like the heavens opened and it was like, he said, do you know what it's worth? I don't know. I said, I've never thought. He said, well, it could be worth something. I said, well, it might be. But then came the dilemma. As soon as my head went above the parapet, people knew I had it. Mm. It's gonna, it was going to be very hard to keep hold of it. And he said, NC Shrove shows on the Sunday. Why don't we find out? So the, uh, you know, the doors were closing for the um, people to bring their stuff, you know, their parrots and their lampstands for about, uh, about six o'clock on Sunday. I left it and I, I phoned up at five to six. I thought, it's too late now. It's bound to be full up. Because I, I didn't want to go, but I did want to go, you know, but I didn't really want to get. She said, um, the lady said, oh, it's a bit late now. And then I felt a bit sad. I thought, oh, well, I'll probably let him down. But then she said, what did you get the name again? I said, yeah, it's Ray Russell. It's, it's George Harrison's. I said, well, I'll, I'll get the guy to bring you back. Anyway, I put the phone down. I was walking away, you know, five steps. Ring, ring. <laughs> Ding, this is the producer. Mm. Did you say, uh, yeah. okay, see you tomorrow, you know? <laughs> so the next thing, yeah, we went down in the morning and he said, you know, we'll uh, send you through um, a special parking permit. And we got there. Anyway, we got out and put it in the special place and got out. And there was this kind of queue, snaky queue of people with all sorts of things, you know, all their trinkets and their pitch and all sorts. Guitar. We were just standing there, and suddenly, like three really big, tall guys with the earpiece came and Ray Russell, Paul Brett, yeah, come with us. <laughs> they got in the BBC, kind of, you know, in the sanctum of the BBC. And, well, you could see it, you know, they set up like a big three camera set up, and the guy from Bonham's, funny enough, was called John, was the uh, head valuer. So he originally valued it in near half a million, but it didn't go for that. It went for a 180,000. But I sold it because the phone didn't stop ringing after that. Every auction company and everywhere wants it. And it was when the cab driver said to me, I was going somewhere, and he said, is that George Harrison's guitar still in your house? And I'm not saying it's anything to do with the <laughs> with the cab driver, not at all. I don't, don't, no slight on the cab driver ever thinking, you know. But I thought, that's so vulnerable. They wouldn't tell us who it was going to, but I have a good idea. And I know that if it is the person I'm thinking of, they are an avid collector and they have, they have lots of stuff. So in a way, I'm I'm sort of pleased with that in a way because it was standing there doing, it wasn't doing much. But I do have pangs about it. Before we go, it's definitely worthwhile covering something a bit more recent from you. And we've got 
the conversation from your own fluid architecture. But I think there is a bit of a backstory behind this track as well, isn't there? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, there's, there's probably two things. Mm. Fluid architecture is part of a line that Joni Mitchell uses, but it originally came from Goethe, originally the phrase from, from Goethe about fluid architecture. And um, I did actually, because of COVID, and I think I wrote, I, I started on my PhD for better off, but for worse. So that was fluid architecture. So I called the album that. And um, the conversation is written because of the meeting with Jimmy. Jimmy Hendrix, well, I was playing in Sweden in one of my first bands I played with, Cat Stevens. Great tunes. I think it was Cottenberg. I think yeah, Walker Brothers were on it too, you know. Ooh. Amazing uh, Bill. And um, I was getting pretty tired and uh, so went to bed. There's like those two double beds, the you know, guitar on the other side, you know, <laughs> give it a nice place to rest. Anyway, I, I was kind of falling asleep and um, telly was on. There was a knock on the window and, and it was Jimmy, but he had all his stuff on, you know, hadn't changed. And um, he was just locked out of the hotel because it was only a small like family hotel and they closed the door, but he'd been out somewhere. Anyway, I let him in. He said, I made him a cup of tea and we, we didn't really talk about music. We just talked about the scene, you know, and and the tour and how much clothes you have to take and all the stuff and taking off strings. And it was it was all really it was all really uh, basic stuff. And uh, we only said a few things. And I said something like, "You know, it's great playing." And he said, "Oh yeah." So I love Strats. Very humble guy and knew much more than he ever played. Mm. I mean, when we were doing um, Montreux and they did little wing and some yeah. stuff to. The stuff that Jimmy would have played over that would have been a lot further on. There's certain things you can't play. I mean, it's like Gary Moore when when we did concerts together. He he wanted to do it because he could play. He could have a jam like a fusion jam, which he couldn't do so much when he was playing because he had to play the songs. Yeah, I feel that uh, Jimmy would do that. I saw Jimmy once at um, King Collier's Club in in town. It was a time when um, uh, he was getting a manager and. Um, What's the bass player in, uh, in The Animals? Chas Chandler. Chas Chandler was his, going to be his manager. He was his manager, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Yeah, and he came down with Chas, and Chas wanted to hear him, and he borrowed my guitar, which was a Strat and, um, at the time, but he played the other round, which was, I don't know how he plays it the other way around, but he did, you know, not even, you know, without the strings, <laughs> just did it. Yeah, so he, he just came in and he, he played for Chas, and he just played the thing. Because we, we were with, um, I was with Georgie at the time. He came in play, and we we said hi, you know, oh yeah, do anything in Sweden and all that. Yeah, we had a little chat, and then he just played. And of course, he just went and everyone was going, oh, "What's this?" He came in and chased some. That was the the tryout. <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? There we were, all accessible, all in the same place. Amazing. So we got the conversation from you, you um. So you still. Still very active. Uh, you've got your website, rayrussell.co.uk. Yeah. Um, I think you're still playing a bit with Mo Foster as well. So what are your current activities? All right. Okay. So I've been doing 606, been doing that. Um, my, actually, been, my son's been playing bass as well, uh, George. It's very, there's some st- there's some stuff on, um, on YouTube with him on. Yeah, Ian Palmer's been playing with us. Well, we were going to make the band a bit bigger, but we've... we've um, We've got it with Jim Watson, you know, the pianist. Mm. Uh, Mo's got a unit, which we, we play a lot of um, uh, great songs, you know, a lot of Gil Evans things, and that's a, that's a six-piece. 
really miss doing, doing gigs on the concert at the moment. Try, hopefully, we'll get you know get something around, and maybe another album. Oh, brilliant! Oh, see, I'll be, hang on. Just let me do a bit of organic yeah. advertising. This has come out on vinyl. Our friends, Jazz in Britain, Ray Russell Sextet featuring Harry Beckett, and only on vinyl. It's um, it's Jazz in Britain Records, so you can only get that. A live recording. It's very nice. No, thank you so much for your time, Ray. It's been great. And you. Thank you for, for your time and uh, of, what, uh, of what you've gone into and asked questions. This is very interesting. All right. Take care, Ray. I'll say goodbye. All right, then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.